0: So how good is your memory? That last scene there, the potter and the clay from last week. The potter never threw the clay away when it became misshaped, Jeremiah 18.4. The potter could have been forming that pot in order to sit on the high altar in the temple. And when that clay becomes disturbed, when it becomes disfigured and malformed. The potter didn't say, "Uh, what a waste this has become. I'm going to throw this away, start all over. He kept the clay. And when he had reformed and reshaped that clay, maybe it wasn't on the high altar in the temple, but maybe it was a tiny communion cup that the people used. He did not dismiss the clay. He reshaped it and he reformed it. And there is one word that describes what he did, and that one word is grace. Why did we sing a baptismal hymn this morning? Why did we sing it? Because those two sacraments are sacraments of divine grace that has come from God. He takes a child or an adult and he bathes that child in. His Word and in His presence and in His promises. And when one comes forth from baptism, they are that new creature because God's grace has found its way into their life. And later in this service, we're going to come forward for this sacrament of communion. It is a sacrament, once again, of divine grace. We come walking up to this altar cognizant of our sin And here comes his body and blood 2,000 years after he made the statement, it is still doing what he said it would do. Sacrifice for your sins shed, my blood shed for you. Nothing has changed when it comes to the grace of God. If he bestows it on Adam and Eve, if he bestows it on Moses, if he bestows it 600 years later on David... If he bestows it upon the major and the minor prophets, and if he bestows it upon twelve disciples who have decided, I don't know who this guy is anymore, if he bestows it upon them, that grace remains the same. It is an endless reservoir set aside for his children. The sermon is entitled The Beginning of Of grace. Genesis 3, 8 and 9. And Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God walking. That's the important verb. He knows they have sinned. And when he finds out they have sinned, he knows it immediately. But when he comes into that garden, his demeanor has not changed. He does not come running into the garden looking for them, ready to take them by the neck and shake them. He does not come with thunder and lightning and hurricane force winds. He comes as He's always come. He comes walking to them in the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam. He didn't shout. He didn't scream. The Lord God called unto Adam And he said to him, Where art thou, Adam? What in the world have you just done? Where art thou, Adam? What have you done? There are many great verses in the Bible, powerful verses. You have God declaring his son to be our shepherd, My son shall be your shepherd. It might come from the pen of David, but it comes straight from God. My son shall be your shepherd. The raging waters in your life that spring up every once in a while, they'll become still. The pastures in your life that are sometimes gray and brown and dead, they shall be brought to life. He'll set a table before you in the presence of whatever enemy has come, including the death of one's brother. He'll anoint your head with oil. And as you walk this earth, you'll understand one thing. He will guide your paths so that his name might be glorified through you. And when your life on this earth is over, you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A thousand funerals and a thousand times request for the twenty-third psalm, in the midst of that enemy called death that has come to someone that you love. Powerful chapters in the Bible, powerful verses. Matthew eleven twenty-eight, one of the most cherished ones. Jesus said, "Come to me, you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn." All you can about me, my promises, my grace, my mercy, my forgiveness, my power, learn about me. And when you learn about me and when you come to me with your burdens, you will find that when you leave my presence, there is one thing that will not be with you, and that is the burden you brought to me. It will just kind of disappear because it will be sitting in my lap. When you walk away, you have my peace. Matthew eleven twenty eight. And then you have Jesus comment, John fourteen three. Every funeral I've ever done that gets read. John fourteen three, Jesus saying, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'll come back. Because I because I want to take you to be with me, that you always, always through eternity, might be where I am. So many verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Not because they're in your hands, but because they're in God's hand. Not because Satan has the power over you, because they're in God's hand. 1 John 4, 4, the one abiding in you is stronger than the one who tempts you. And then that great verse, Matthew 17, 20. Jesus is saying, if your faith is so small, you need a magnifying glass to see it. If it's as small as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to whatever mountain is in your life, remove yourself from me. And because you're speaking to me to remove that mountain, it shall be removed. Powerful verses in the Bible. And where does it all begin? Genesis 3. Where does God's grace begin? Genesis 3. Where do 7,000 promises begin? Genesis 3. The Christmas story, the cross on Good Friday, the empty tomb at Easter, where does it all begin? Genesis 3 verse 8 and 9, when God said, where art thou, Adam? What hast thou done? God had two options. He said to Adam and Eve, let's say there's a thousand trees in the garden. I'm giving you 999 trees that you can eat from. 999, but there's one. don't want you getting close to it. I don't want you touching it. I don't want you looking at it. I don't want you eating of the fruit. Stay away from that one tree. And Satan comes. Alexander McLaren, I love his comment about Satan. He can tempt you, but he can't force you. Oh my goodness. Satan can tempt you, but he cannot force you. He can tempt Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to give up the cross, but he cannot force Jesus to do it. He can tempt every single one of the biographies in this Bible. He can tempt you and me, but he cannot force us. 1 Corinthians 10, God gives you the power to overcome temptation. James 4, 7, come near to God, resist Satan. He'll leave you alone for a while. We have the power to overcome temptation. Has anyone who's ever lived on this earth, have they ever, ever had that power to resist it every time it comes? Not a single one, except Jesus, Hebrews 5, 8, except Jesus. If we're sinners, what has to come into play? Grace. What if God had said to Adam, I promised you that you would die if you touched that fruit. You're dead. You're gone. I'm going to throw away the clay. The master plotter is going to throw away your lousy clay. And I'm going to start all over. What if God had said that in his anger? Adam, what hast thou done? Does sin cause death? Yeah. Not just temporal death on this earth. Not just our bodies leaving this earth at age 8 or 27 or 62 or 103. Death comes when Satan, Pastor Shower, a number of years ago, he said, when you sin, you remove yourself of the kingdom of God and you decide you're going to follow Satan. And when you follow Satan, death is always there. There's death to the peace that you used to have within you. There's death to the relationships that you have with your spouse or your children or your parents or your friends. There's death all over the place when one sins. How will God handle it? The grace. There was a seminary professor who had a classroom of students. He was teaching the art of preaching. He had a most interesting exercise as part of his format. Every year he would have the students stand up at the lectern and he would open the Bible to Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. And he would have each one of the students read that two verses. Some of the students would get up there and they would read as if God were simply asking a question. Hey, Adam, haven't seen you for a while. Where are you? Some students would get up and in the loudest, angriest voice they could register, they would shout, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Some of them would treat the question Indifferently, Not a big deal here. Adam, you know, when you can get back to me, get back to me. You know, where are you? But there was one student he had in all the years of his professorship. There was one student who when he got up to read that verse, there were tears in his eyes. And there was great emotion in his voice. And he read with tears coming down his face, Adam, where art thou? What hast thou done? And the professor pulled him aside after the class, and he said, you're one of the rare ones who actually understands that verse. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, God's heart was broken for what they had brought upon themselves. His heart was broken. You and I have two options when we're sinned against. When someone has broken our trust, when they have just destroyed whatever relationship we had with them because of their actions toward us or our actions toward them. You have two options. You can become enraged to the point where there is physicality or holes in the walls or broken dishes that were thrown. You can become so enraged at what they have done to you God could have been so enraged as to what Adam and Eve had done to him. But that isn't how God looked at it. When someone sins against you, when they've broken your trust almost irreparably, there is a second way one can respond. You can respond by looking at that person and actually having a broken heart not because of what they've done to you but because of what they've brought into their own life and what they brought into their own life is what Dallas Willard describes in the spirit of the disciplines he says when you sin when you decide to follow satan for that moment or those moments all of a sudden you're off the path And you're walking in mud that has no end. And you're walking in quicksand that seems to suffocate whatever peace you desire to have. And then he said, your life becomes half-truths and lies over and over and over again. God's heart was broken. Because of what Adam and Eve had brought to themselves. And he knew what was coming. Can you and I have broken hearts when someone sins against us? Because we forget ourselves. And we think about them. We just shake our head because we know. That the territory they have entered will do them great harm. It's fairly easy to do if it's a child of yours. Let a child do the most grievous thing against you as a parent, and you will, in your heart, the anger you have will dissipate because the love you have for them, it never ends. In the Old Testament, Isaiah said, Isaiah 59 2, thy sin, and David had been there 200 years earlier, thy sin has separated thee from God. He cannot hear thee, cannot bless thee, cannot see your face. Thy sin has separated thee from God. Here comes God's grace. It takes the form of a cross. And on that cross, God's grace showers itself upon those of us who have broken a relationship with him and with so many others in our life. Here comes God's grace. It gets cemented down in hell for three days. But when that tomb becomes empty, God's grace pours forth. Adam, David, Moses, Abraham, Samson, Judas Iscariot, my eleven other disciples, Simon, Peter, what hast thou done? There are three things that come as a result of sin. One is remorse. Did Adam have it indeed? One is shame. Did Adam have it? Yes, he phrased it in the comment. I was naked, and that's why I hid from you. Remorse and shame, and then fear. Fear of consequences of sin. Fear of I've damaged my family so badly they have nothing to do with me. I've damaged my parents so badly they'll have nothing to do with me. I've damaged my friends so badly. Will I get caught? Will there be a penalty? Will I be put on probation? Will I spend nine years in prison? Will I lose my job? What if I lose my job? What's going to happen to my family then? There is fear. And here comes God in the garden. And here comes God to King David an hour after he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Here comes God. And his heart is filled with emotion. And that's what causes him to send his son. Does God get angry over sin? Oh, intensely. Because when you sin, Satan is one. And God knows it. But the heart of God towards his children is like a parent's heart to their own children. He will always, always love, and he will always, always forgive. Always. Remorse, shame, and guilt removed by repentance and that faith in our Lord. What prompts this sermon? You know. Life. Preaching last week about the gentleman on his deathbed, wondering if his sin will keep him out of heaven. And it was but two days later that the phone call comes. Pastor, I don't want to wait till my deathbed. I want to come talk to you now about my sin that has plagued me all these years. And every time something bad happens in my life, I think it's God's anger directed at me. Where does that, this sermon come from? From a half hour spent with that gentleman, in which I assured him, yeah, God's angry over sin. He sends his own son to pay the penalty. But when he looks at you, he looks at you like he would look at your own son and daughter if they sin. He looks at you, and his heart is broken. And he comes and saves. Who wrote 1 Peter eight? Peter! What does 1 Peter 4.8 say? It says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Is it ironic that Peter wrote it? No, because when he wrote it, he was thinking back 40 years earlier when in that courtyard, while Jesus was in that building, he says to the Roman soldiers and to that 14-year-old girl, I don't know who Jesus is. I'm going to throw in a few four-letter words to emphasize it, I don't know who Jesus is. Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Have you ever wondered why he did? I'll tell you why he did. In my thoughts, I'll tell you why he did. Because when he said those words, who came out of the building? Jesus. And Jesus heard him speaking. And if Jesus had raised his voice and shouted at Simon Peter, you coward and you're hypocrite, the end would have been different. Jesus looked at him with sorrow on his face, not for himself, but sorrow for Simon Peter. And 40 days later, he would say to Simon, do you love me? And then he would say, go feed my sheep. I've reshaped your clay. Go feed my sheep. To that dear gentleman, I said, you gotta be got to be here this weekend. He said, you know, I always am. I said, the sermon is exclusively for you. But if Paul Strand or anyone else can look at the message and understand the love of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then you and maybe a handful of others will be blessed. Heavenly Father, when Satan comes, he can tempt us, but he cannot force us. And when we fall, God's heart looks down like the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and lost one. God's heart looks down like the father did with the prodigal son, God's heart looks down and he says, you are forgiven, you are restored. Come back to me and serve my kingdom. Keep us close to you, Lord, when the air quality is bad, when our life quality is bad, when we are in a darkness so deep because sin has swallowed us up, Help us to remember who roars the loudest, the one who's standing on that path. And like the thief on the cross, till I breathe my last, he will be there with his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. And yet another child of his shall be saved. In our Savior's name, amen